Welcome to the Sunday School Lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad we can spend this time together. Our Sunday School Lessons come from the Nazarene Quarterly, and today we will be looking at the lesson from Sunday, August 9th. But before we begin, I want to offer the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. The title for today's lesson is Hope for the Discouraged. And our theme is about depression. Depression is common to all of us, and the psalmist certainly was familiar with depression. Our text today, Psalm 42, gives us a description of depression, and it also tells us uh, steps that the psalmist took to deal with depression. John Bloom or is a Christian author who writes about his own experience with depression. In 1997, he was 31 years old, happily married, uh, the father of a baby boy, leading a, a new, rapidly growing ministry, and it seemed that everything was going right. And then, as he describes it, God went dark. He writes how suddenly he couldn't see God at all. He saw the world as if God didn't exist, and this was something totally new for him. He had felt an awareness of God since he was a young boy. He testifies to being a Christian from around the age of 10 until that day. I have on a slide a quote from him where he describes what it felt like to go through this period. He writes, Everything appeared hollow. Work appeared meaningless. Rest appeared meaningless. Leisure appeared meaningless. The cosmos appeared meaningless. Life appeared meaningless. Many Christians have experienced uh, depression and discouragement. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, all were known for experiencing depression. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, wrote a, a book called A Grief Observed. And I have a slide that I want to show you where he writes about his experience. He had lost his wife to cancer. And he writes about going to God for some kind of answer, some kind of sign, but not getting an answer. He writes, Go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. From these descriptions, we get an understanding of how awful depression, discouragement can be. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 as our text. And actually, Psalm 42 and 43 are probably the same psalm. In the original, they were probably combined. We feel like David wrote these describing a time in his life when God seems to be absent, a time when he's turned over to his enemies. He talks in the psalm of 
a, a time in the past when he was able to go to the temple, but now he cannot. And so many believe this psalm was written when David was fleeing Jerusalem to get away from his son Absalom, who had rebelled against him and who actually was trying to kill David. And so you can see the, the depression and discouragement David would have been going through. In today's lesson, we're going to look at three parts. Part one is understanding the problem. What does depression and discouragement look like? Part two, understanding the causes of depression. How should we as the church view depression? And then in part three, understanding solutions. How can we respond to depression and discouragement? So we want to begin with understanding the problem. What does depression feel like? And so the psalmist in Psalm 42 tells us about his experience. He describes the symptoms of depression. I have several verses here on a slide where the psalmist describes having an overwhelming sadness. He writes, My tears have been my food day and night. My soul is downcast within me. My bones suffer mortal agony. So from this, we see a man gripped by sadness. In fact, he compares it to a death blow. He says mortal agony. The idea is of a knife piercing the heart. Sadness can be a difficult topic for Christians. You know, we have all of this scripture that commands us to be joyful. The Psalms are full of commands that tell the righteous to rejoice. Psalm 33, 1, 32, 11, 68, 3, Psalm 97, 12. All of them basically say, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. And then, of course, Philippians 4, 4 is a verse quoted over and over. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So, is it okay for Christians to be sad? Are sad Christians somehow not living up to what they should be doing or to where they should be? And I think a lot of times we misunderstand verses like these. Mark Ballinger wrote an article entitled, is it a sin to be sad? On a slide, I have a quote from him that I want to show you. He writes, God never tells us to simply rejoice no matter what. God tells us to rejoice in Him no matter what. And Mark goes on to say that the idea that Christians achieve some kind of inner tranquility by learning to ignore life's problems and difficulties. This is more of a Buddhist concept than a Christian one. Jesus himself certainly wasn't detached from this world. Scripture describes him as a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. Uh, Sergio Marchinko wrote an article where he tried to describe what it is we talk about when we talk about the scriptural concept of joy. And he writes that at its core, joy is not an emotion. He describes joy as a dispensation of the soul that often results in emotion, but it doesn't depend upon it. So he describes joy as an affection rather than emotion, an affection in the sense of being a strong inclination of the soul 
the, an inclination that makes itself known through our thinking and our feeling and our acting. Jonathan Edwards wrote of this religious affection, and he described religious affections as when we set our hearts and minds on what we know to be real, to be true, a strong inclination that makes itself known through our thoughts and our feelings and our actions. So joy really is an affection, not an emotion. Affections are more what we feel. It's, I, I'm sorry, affections are more than what we feel. They are what we know to be true, what we base our lives upon, what we act on. You know, when the Bible commands us to rejoice, to take joy, it's not talking about making ourselves feel certain feelings. Instead, it's telling us to incline our hearts to the reality of God, to make ourselves aware of who God is and what He's done. And that's the basis for an overall satisfaction, enjoyment, indeed even pleasure at who God is, but an awareness that goes beyond any particular feelings of the moment. Uh, I have a quote here from Sergio Marchinko that I want to share. He writes, Every Christian should be able to say truthfully that they are joyful in the Lord and at the same time that they cannot feel joyful in the Lord. And so I think we have to understand the distinction between that, that we can be joyful without necessarily having the emotion of feeling that joy at that particular moment. The psalmist goes on to give a description of depression by describing a deep loneliness, a sense of isolation, of being cut off from those around him. I have a scripture here from the psalm where he writes, While people say to me all day long, Where is your God? As my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Loneliness is becoming pervasive in our world. Cigna Healthcare did a study in the summer of 2019 where they found more than three in five Americans report being lonely. And so depression is especially dangerous because it cuts us off from everyone, from our friends and from our enemies. Notice that here in Psalm 42, it's not just the foes, the enemies of the psalmist who say to him, where is your God? It's others. It's ones that he may have considered his friends. It seems like no one understands his situation. When they ask him, where is your God? The unspoken assumption is, this is your fault. The idea is he must have sinned in some way or he's lacking in some way. And depression can cause us even greater hurt when we turn to those who should support us, our family, our friends, our church members, and find people who just don't understand, people who just tell us to snap out of it. Now, the psalmist goes on to describe depression by giving a third symptom. He describes depression as feeling abandoned, as no longer feeling the Lord's presence. I have here the first verses of this psalm on a slide. And David begins the psalm by writing, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
when can I go and meet with God? It's interesting, this is the only psalm that begins with a metaphor, and a very powerful metaphor at that. We get from this the feeling of how intense uh, David's uh, feeling of abandonment was. Now, this verse about as the deer panteth for the water, it's a verse we quote a lot, and we generally take it out of context. Usually, we use this to describe David's intense closeness to God. We use it to describe how David felt God's presence in his life, how much David valued, enjoyed his close connection to God. But if you read this, what the psalmist is describing when he uses the metaphor of a deer panting after the water He's describing how he wants to feel God's presence, but he doesn't. He asks, where can I go or when can I go and meet with God? So it gives the verse a different meaning when we realize what David is really saying. There are times when we long for God, but we can't feel God there. And what makes the psalmist feel even worse is he can remember times when the Lord was present. He remembers when he felt a closeness to God. He writes, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise. And if you contrast this Psalm 42 with Psalm 23, where David writes, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters we get an idea of the contrast here and of what the the psalmist is going through. You know, we don't miss what we've never had, but when we've had a relationship and then it's cut off, and especially when we don't know why, this is particularly hard to deal with. We feel not only abandoned but betrayed that one who should be near to us is no longer there. Now, a final symptom that the psalmist describes when he talks to us about his depression, he doesn't understand. He begins to question. He's left asking why. I have on a slide here a a verse where it says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? One of the worst aspects of depression is when we can't understand why we are depressed. You know, sometimes we've got good reasons for being depressed. We can understand exactly what's causing the depression. And if that's the case, we handle it a lot better. But those times when we really have no reason to be depressed, but the depression is there all the same. It can't be denied, and yet we're left wondering, why is this happening? This brings to us the question, is it right to question God? Does God want us to question Him, or does God rather want us to have blind faith, unquestioning obedience? When we look at Scripture, we learn from Scripture that the Bible does encourage us to ask questions. Jesus asked questions of God. On the cross, Jesus gives one of the most heart-wrenching questions that we have in Scripture, where he, he calls out to God, My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? And I know there, there are many who take this to be a quote on Jesus' part, where he's not really asking a question or it's more of a rhetorical question. But really, I, I feel like this is a legitimate question and a legitimate cry on Jesus' part, where he's asking, why is this happening? Scripture tells us to ask questions. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And so James tells us, if you lack wisdom, if you don't know why, ask God. God will tell you without finding fault. But we have to remember, there is a right way and a wrong way to question God. Laura Jones wrote an article where she talked about how her earthly father was such a big help in helping her to understand God. And she writes about how she learned a lot from being able to question her earthly father. She writes, Dad's decisions were final. I could ask a disappointed why, but not a belligerent one. So as she writes, you know, our questions to God have to be legitimate questions. They can't be complaints in disguise. So it's not whether we question God, but it's our reasons for doing so. And we have to make sure we're asking the right questions. Uh, I like watching lawyer shows on television. And our court system is set up so that lawyers have to ask questions. They don't get to just testify on their own. If they want to bring out a particular point, they have to ask the witness a specific question. Christina Fox writes that we like to ask the wrong kind of questions. We like to ask what questions and where questions and why questions. Where is God? Why is this happening? How am I going to be saved? The one question we should be asking God and the one question God will always answer is the who question. Who will deliver me? And of course, the answer is God himself. Uh, I have a, a quote here from Scott Hubbard. Uh, I have it on the slide where he writes, Answers, glorious as they are, are not our final hope. Christ is. And so we are encouraged to ask questions with the understanding that we may not get the answer we like. We may not get an answer that we fully understand, but we can rest in Christ himself. Part two of our lesson uh, looks at understanding the causes of depression. How should we as the church view depression? And too often the church has viewed depression as either a sin or as a character flaw. We feel that depression represents a lack of faith or a spiritual immaturity. And so many times we may promote the idea that those who are suffering from depression should just snap out of it. You know, if they could only have enough faith, they could get rid of this depression. And we need to recognize depression is caused by many factors. Some may be our fault. Some are not our fault. You know, sometimes we can do something about the depression. Sometimes we can't. Kay Warren is the wife of Rick Warren who uh, is the pastor of a large megachurch. He wrote the book 
uh, about the purpose-driven life. And she, they, they had a son who committed suicide when he was in his 20s. And so she certainly knows about the effects of depression. But she writes, we are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And things go wrong on all levels. And so we have to realize our depression may come from any of those sources. It may come from a physical source. It may come from an emotional or mental source. Or it may be due to a spiritual source. And we may not know what's going on or what's causing it. But just because we don't know or because others can't know, it doesn't make it any less real. But we also need to realize that depression can have a hidden potential. And I want to be very careful when I say this. I don't want to minimize the reality of depression, the suffering that depression causes. But there are positive aspects to depression. Depression can lead to a a deeper, more ultimately satisfying relationship with God. It's interesting, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, this was Matthew's account of the core teachings of Jesus. And he begins these teachings with the Beatitudes, this series of statements where he says, Blessed are. And the very second Beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn. And many times we want to spiritualize this. When you look at what the commentators say, they, they say something like, Blessed are those who mourn over their sins or who mourn because of wickedness. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus simply said, Blessed are those who mourn, and he left it at that. Now, in other cases, Jesus expounded on what he was saying. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And then he added, For righteousness. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted. And then he added, For the sake of righteousness or because of righteousness. But in this case, Jesus doesn't say, Blessed are those who mourn for this particular reason. He simply says, Blessed are those who mourn. And so it seems to be that Jesus is telling us there is something unique about the experience of mourning itself that can be valuable, enough for Jesus to call it blessed. Last week, we talked about how we can fail to delight in the Lord because we fill ourselves up with lesser things. And I think this is a key to how depression can have a positive aspect. Depression may allow us to have access to a deeper relationship with Christ because we are not able to fill ourselves up with lesser things. You know, most of us never experience real hunger or thirst because we never allow ourselves to get really, truly hungry or thirsty. When we first begin to experience these feelings, we reach out to snack on something, to drink something. And there's nothing wrong with this. You know, I do this myself. It's normal. When we were kids, we had our mother there to say, don't eat that, you'll spoil your dinner. Now we're adults and we can decide whether we eat something or not. And so a lot of times we never get truly hungry because we're always uh, nibbling on something, snacking on something, etc. Because we are never truly hungry, we never really enjoy or appreciate food 
as much as one who does who is hungry. We have so many conveniences in our modern lives, so many things that add to our comfort. It becomes hard for us to really feel the fulfillment of desire. And a lot of times we experience this same lack when it comes to spiritual things. When we experience a, a spiritual setback at the very first tinges of sadness or of discomfort, really of any unpleasant sensation, we turn to something that makes us feel better. And we have so many things that we can put into the place of whatever we're lacking. You know, we can take a vacation. We can indulge a hobby. We can go see a movie. There are so many things that we can do. And these are not bad things in themselves. But what they do is they keep us from experiencing a lack in our lives. Now, the person who's suffering from depression, they can't do this. The depression keeps them from enjoying these things. And as a result, the depressed person truly experiences this lack of things. But it also means that the depressed person can feel the full experience of fulfilling that desire when it comes to pass. Richard Foster writes, Much contemporary experience is surface slush. And I think he's right about that. Not things that are necessarily sinful, but things that we fill our lives up with. And so because of that, we never experience a truly deep hunger for the things of God. Now, I don't want to glorify depression. I'm glad that God has allowed us to have medicines and to allow us treatment for depression. And I would encourage anyone who's suffering from depression, take advantage of medication and treatments that are available. But if we are suffering, it can help us if we realize that even depression and discouragement may have a hidden blessing or potential in allowing us to experience God in a fresh way. Scripture tells us, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The one who's gone through a period of depression is often uniquely capable of tasting and delighting in God. The third part of our lesson deals with how we respond to depression, understanding solutions. And the psalmist tells us several things that he does in counteracting depression. Now again, we should certainly seek help for depression. We should talk to pastors or professional counselors. We should see doctors when we need to. Uh, you know, this is not something we should face on our own. And we want to be very careful about blaming the victim. When we talk about what we can do about depression, we don't want to give uh, the impression that we're telling people who are depressed, it's your fault and you should be doing something about it. But there are sometimes, there are things we can do. And the psalmist shows us several things here in Psalm 42. First of all, the psalmist responds to his depression by reining in his emotions, by putting a check on himself. Uh, he preaches to himself. I have a slide here from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And he writes, most of the unhappiness in our lives comes from the fact that we are listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. 
And that has a lot of truth to it. We get so caught up in listening to what's happened, happening to us that we should be talking to ourselves, telling ourselves what is reality. Look at what the psalmist tells himself. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, we need to realize what he's not doing here. He's not giving himself a stern talking to. He's not telling himself, just snap out of it. He's not beating himself up. What he's doing is he is reminding himself of eternal truths, foundational truths. He's reminding himself of what is actually real. And so he's reminding himself emotions can't always be trusted. There's a deeper reality beyond our emotions. Our emotions often tell us things about this world that simply aren't true. And at times we need to remind ourselves the reality may be far different from what we are feeling, what we are experiencing. You know, many times we assume that what we are experiencing is true reality, but that's not the case. We know that our senses, our brain, often fools us. It assumes certain things about the real world around us that simply isn't so. Optical illusions are a very good example of this. Our brain tells us one thing, but reality is something very different. And we know that our brain can tell us something that's different from what other people are experiencing. Uh, several years ago, there was a, a fad that swept the Internet that had to do with the color of a particular dress. And there was a picture that was posted. And it was so interesting because some people saw the dress as white and gold, and some people saw the dress as blue and black. And it was amazing that two people could look at the same picture of the same dress and see two entirely different colors. But it reminds us that our experience is subjective. It changes from person to person. Now, the psalmist also reminds himself that the ultimate reality, the only thing that can absolutely be counted upon, the thing that is eternal and unchangeable, is God himself. He writes, put your hope in God. The reality is, no matter what our emotions are telling us, no matter what we are experiencing, we can know for certain God has not changed. You know, hope is an extremely important biblical concept. It's mentioned more than 180 times in the Bible. And it's very prominent in Paul's writings in the New Testament. In fact, Paul uses this word for hope more than any other writer in the New Testament. And so we, we can see how important Paul considered it. But hope is the precursor to faith. You know, without hope, it's impossible to have faith. Hope opens the door by allowing us to consider the options, the availability of what's out there. And so biblical hope is the confidence that something will come to pass because God has said that it will. And so the psalmist reminds himself of the reality of God himself. And the psalmist reminds himself circumstances will change. What is occurring now is not permanent. It's temporary. He writes, I will yet praise him. So the psalmist is reaffirming, I will have reasons to praise God again. Things will change. 
You know, as we learned last week, we need to learn to see things from an eternal perspective. This life, with its high points and its low points, is just a blip. It's going to vanish away. Scripture describes our lives as a mist, as a flower that springs up in the morning and by the afternoon is wilted and gone. And so we can learn from the psalmist to look at our present circumstances and to understand they will change. You know, we really need to take the idea of heaven more seriously. A lot of times we allow this world to overshadow what we can expect in the next. And the next world is going to be so much more important than this world. I have here on the slide several verses uh, that tell us what we can expect from the life to come. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. 1 Corinthians 15, 43, It, meaning our bodies, is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. And 1 Peter 1.4, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so we get an idea of what is in store for us. And we need to keep that in our minds as we're dealing with depression and discouragement in this life. Then the psalmist takes some very specific steps to counteract his depression. First, he uses the power of hymns and prayers. The Psalm 42 tells us, At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he uses a very powerful weapon here. He sings his prayers to God, using that to comfort his soul. Ephesians 5, 18-20 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father. You know, singing is a pathway that God has designed to lead us to joy. James 5.13 says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In the scripture, joy and, and praise are bound together. Uh, when you find one, you find the other. And we usually feel like joy and singing. It's joy that comes first, and then we sing our praise. But it can be the other way around. We can use singing to produce joy. The way our brains are set up, we can't do two things at the same time. Lots of people want to claim that they can multitask. But multitasking is really a myth. You can switch between two tasks, but you really can't do two things at the exact same time. We get an example of this from a reflex that we use when we bump our elbows. When we bump our elbows, the first thing we do, we begin to rub the elbow. And we do this for a very simple reason. Your brain has one set of nerves. And when you hit your elbow, it's sending a pain signal through those nerves, and that hurts. When you rub your elbow, you are sending a pressure signal. And the fact is, both signals can't pass along the nerve at the same time. 
And so the pressure signal will actually block the pain signal. And so a lot of times this is the way that it works with joy and with singing. As we're singing, we focus our attention on a different object, on, on a different signal, so to speak. And this lets us focus on God, which allows us to crowd out focusing on what is around us. And so there's a lot of research in psychology which shows that by changing our behavior, we can also change the way that we feel. If we act as if we feel a certain way, we can often produce that emotion. So if we act as if we're happy, we can actually experience the emotion of happiness. Uh, the psalmist shows us that by using singing as a pathway to joy. Another technique that the, that the psalmist uses is to call out the names of God. It's interesting, in this psalm, he gives us several names for God. He refers to God as the living God, the mighty one, my Savior, my God, God of my life, God my rock. And so when we meditate on the names of God, we meditate on the attributes of God, we learn who God really is. Names in biblical culture had a greater meaning than they do today, but they had significance. Knowing someone's name meant that you knew something about that person's character. You knew who they were. And uh, in the Bible, we are given multiple names for God, over 300 names for God given in Scripture. When we call out these names of God, it allows us to, to meditate on who God is, on specific attributes of God, on the eternal truths about God. And so when we see how God or how Scripture refers to God in all of these ways, it reminds us of who God is and of the fact that God does not change. We can take comfort in knowing who God is and what God is like. In conclusion, the psalmist offers a challenge. He writes, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's interesting, the psalmist begins this psalm by asking very tough questions. You know, when can I meet with God? But then he answers his questions. Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. At the beginning, he's full of questions. He doesn't get any answers from God. Nothing has changed in his external circumstances. His soul is still thirsting, still panting after God. His foes are still taunting him, where is your God? So the circumstances haven't changed, but what has changed is David himself. The psalmist concludes he will praise, he will trust in God, no matter what. He's made his choice. Uh, it's interesting that when pilots are flying uh, planes, especially smaller planes, when they fly into a situation where they can't see the horizon, it may be that they're surrounded by fog or cloud, or it may be that because of sunlight the horizon is hazy. Uh, when they don't have any visual cues to orient themselves in space, the body begins to fool itself. 
The pilot is convinced that he's flying straight. His body tells him he's flying straight, but his instruments tell him that he's actually turning. The pilot is certain that he's flying level, but the instruments tell him that he's losing altitude. When this happens, pilots fall prey to what's called a graveyard spiral. It's an instinctive set of maneuvers that pilots begin to use when they lose sight of the horizon. And what happens is the plane begins a gentle turn and then it begins to descend and then it begins to move faster and to spiral more and more until eventually it's out of control. And this can happen very quickly. There was a safety film put out called 178 Seconds to Live where it traced a a pilot's actions as they went through this. Now, the only way for a pilot to come out of this graveyard spiral is to quit trusting what his body is telling him and to pay attention to what the instruments are telling him. He's got to use his instruments rather than his instincts. And that is a very difficult thing to do when his body, his mind is screaming one thing, but the instruments are telling him something that is opposite to that. We have to do the same thing when we face depression and discouragement. We have to learn to fly by the instrument, so to speak. We have to learn to take Scripture at face value, what it's telling us, and to believe that that is true. We have to believe that we can trust in God and what He's telling us, no matter what our circumstances are saying, no matter what our emotions are screaming at us, that in the end, we can put our hope and our trust in God himself. And I want to challenge you as you go through this next week, uh, as you go uh, from here on, that you would put this into practice, and that you you would use uh, these words from the psalmist uh, to to preach to yourself and to to, uh, take into account what Scripture tells us about how we can deal with depression. Let's uh, end with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and for what you've taught to us. And we ask that you would help us to, to listen to you, to base our trust entirely in you, and, and to walk in the light that you have given us. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen. <music>